This is a case from the Shoroku. The Diamond Scripture Revilement. Introduction. Understanding the meaning based on the scripture is the enemy of the Buddhas of all times. Deviating one word from the scriptures is the same as devil time. Does someone who is not included in cause and effect still experience the result of action or not? The case. Diamond Cutter Scripture says, if someone is reviled by others, this person has done wicked acts in previous ages and should fall into evil ways. But because of the scorns and revilements of people in the present age, the wicked deeds of the past ages are dissolved. The verse. Continuous success and failure, inextricable cause and effect. Outside the mirror easily ran Yajnadatta. With the staff, the oven breaker struck, the oven fell. The spirit came to celebrate, only to be told he had been turning away from himself. Last week I mentioned that Teisho should be seen and taken and experienced as a continuation of Zazen. It's not a lecture. It's not a way to enrich our knowledge. It's another way to seek Zazen. It's another way to awaken something that is dormant. So to see the Zazen, sit in Zazen position, you can keep your eyes closed. You can keep your eyes slightly open, look straight down. It doesn't mean to be uptight or rigid. It just means to listen from a different place rather than from something in us that maybe is interested in gaining something, maybe feels incomplete and thinks that this will be that teisho that will or is the missing piece of the puzzle. So to listen from a place of completeness. So today we, we embark on this 90-day journey we call Ango. And I've been talking to, to actually almost everybody and I get the sense that you have been giving this considerable amount of contemplation over the past few weeks. And you have examined the areas in your life that where the light of wisdom is not penetrating. And I think we have a pretty good idea of what Ango is about. 
and individually, you have some clarity about the intentions you have raised and practical ways in which you're going to engage those intentions, right? To bring them to fruition, to actualize the intentions. Actualize the intention to actualize wisdom. Mouthful. So there is something that we are already engaged in, right, in terms of intention, in terms of cultivating strength, trust that we can do it. And that's a good place to begin from. I also devoted two talks, the last two talks, uh, to try and shed light on, on the purpose of Angola in general and specifically on the theme of this particular angle, right? This specific angle in terms of wisdom. In one of these talks, I touched on the aspect of karma. And I mentioned that we need to understand how to meet it. We need to understand how to engage in what we call karma. It's only relevant to how we practice during Ango, it's relevant to how we live everyday life because it is an integral part of everybody's life, practitioners or non-practitioners. There's no way around having to face, having to deal with karma. The difference between being a practitioner and not being a practitioner is that we pick it up and look at it and work with it or, or choose to work with it rather than always be thrown from side to side by what happened up to this moment or being victimized by what happened up to this moment. If we don't explore the aspect of karma and understand, understand it to be an unavoidable component of practice, any intentions we raise today will meet a great wall tomorrow. A wall that will seem impenetrable. And then again and again we are thrown back to the same place. There's always moving forward, right? We never really go back. We never, it's impossible to stop, pause, or go back. But when we feel as if we're stuck, when we feel as if we, are, we have gone back to old habits, the only thing that changes is that we may feel deflated and then not know how to raise the, the energy that is needed in order to awaken. Right away, we are constantly moving forward. So, Buddhism teaches two, or aimed at clarifying two fundamental inseparable aspects of our existence. 
impermanence and karma. And this morning I mentioned that as the last of the eight essential aspects the Buddha brought up as essential to raising wisdom, cultivating wisdom. And the last one was to contemplate impermanence, but on a, per on a very personal level, not to just contemplate impermanence, but to contemplate our own mortality. To, to see that as not a choice. Now it can seem morbid, right? Why would we want to think about death? We try very hard to not do that. We try very hard to distract ourselves from looking at our own mortality. But it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, what's the option? Why wouldn't we want to face up, own up to something that is so fundamental and so interlaced through our existence? So by examining the aspect of impermanence, we can, we can see very clearly that what we view as a fixed self is actually in constant flux. But again, not, not as a concept, not philosophically, but to actually look for that, to try to verify if what you think about you or how you see yourself to look at that and to ask, is it true? And if I say yes, then how can I prove that this is true? Can I actually say that the one who did what I did yesterday is the one who is doing what I'm doing today? What is it? That's the same. Who is the same? Who is changing? So not philosophically, but in actual terms. What is this? <coughs> it doesn't take long, if we're honest. It doesn't take long to, to see that this is just an idea that is hanging in midair. Oh, I am holding on to a handle that is not attached to anything or not bolted into anything. So I am falling and the handle is falling. We're all falling. Falling apart, that is. And the aspect of impermanence, of course, is intimately related to right view. Beginning of the Eightfold Path. Seeing reality as it is. Pointing directly at emptiness, interdependent origination, fundamental point, nature, God, Buddha. And if we do grasp it experientially, or when we do grasp it experientially, we actually are moving towards 
living in accordance with the Dharma. We are moving towards cultivating and then actualizing wisdom. Not the cumulative kind, but the inherent kind. The truth. <coughs> so no separate existence. Contemplate our own mortality. Contemplate mortality of everyone we love, everything we care about. And then the second aspect of Buddhist teachings, come, not the word, come, can be translated to causational action. The fact, the simple truth of interdependent origination actually showing, is showing us that everything is codependent, co-arising. That nothing, the fact that nothing exists to, in, onto itself is already pointing at karma as a fact of life, the truth of life. If everything is arising if nothing exists onto itself, obviously everything affects everything. What we see and what we don't see, it's easy to maybe understand that when we look at what we see. But obviously seeing is limited. Thinking is limited. There's a lot that we don't see that also obeys that same fundamental law, same fundamental principle. So it's important to go beyond, or at least have a sense of trust that this law is never limited to what a person is experiencing. Or seeing. So causational action naturally occurring phenomena. But how we understand this is absolutely critical to how we actualize the true meaning of how do you understand the truth of impermanence, the truth of your own mortality? How do you understand everything is co-arising, co-dependent, cause is effect, effect is cause, non-stop. How do we understand that? And looking at the introduction, right? It is warning us about this, about understanding this, but also understanding things intellectually versus experientially. And it says, 
Understanding the meaning based on the scriptures is the enemy of the Buddhas of all times. We can dive into reading Buddhist teachings thoroughly and actually develop a clear understanding of what it means. Maybe even give lectures about it. And yet, at the same time, be clueless when it comes to living it. I have to say, I see it in Aikido all the time. Practicing Aikido for almost 30 years. And I see it a lot. I see people who are amazingly skillful on demand and absolutely stupid when it comes to applying what we cultivate on demand or what we are meant to cultivate on demand. We can be very good at something and really and it doesn't mean that we're not doing it correctly when we're doing it. We are in alignment. It's like athletes. Sometimes you look at athletes and they're absolutely in what is called the zone. They get into it and they are at one with something that is far greater than that particular person, that the power of that particular person. Something else is moving or creating that movement. But yet when, as soon as the activity is done, hell returns. There's a disconnect. And it's showing, actually showing two things, right? It's showing that we have the ability to be in alignment. We also have the ability to not be in alignment. Simple. We can do it. We're up for it. So if we understand the meaning based on the scriptures, that's a problem. That is creating a gap. And if we get excited about Buddhism by reading about it, it's a little bit like getting excited about uh, looking at a corpse, examining a corpse. It's dead. Absolutely dead. The blood is not flowing. There's no blood in the books. There's no life in the books. And then it says, deviating one word from the scriptures is the same as devil talk. So does that mean we follow the scriptures or we ignore the scriptures? You know, the words are lifeless, but they are true. 
And the words are true only if they move you at the hala, at the core, at the center. Then the words are alive. And they can only be alive through us. Buddhism can only be alive through practitioners. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not whatever it is we call it. It's not even a religion by word. It is a religion before religion. Before we began destroying the meaning and holding on to the scriptures. So deviating one word from the scripture is the same as not being in alignment. Not with the words, but with the truth. The words point are we seeing. And then this is also pointing, obviously, at, at karma. How do we understand karma? Based on the scriptures? How do we understand it based on the truth? Based on looking deeply into the truth, into what is real? How do we understand karma looking at impermanence? Then the introduction is asked, it ends by asking us, does someone who is not included in cause and effect still experience the result of action or not? How do, we do, how do we understand being in alignment? Maybe we think that if we are in alignment, we are free of consequences. Maybe we think that that's what the word freedom means. Right? If I'm in alignment, then I'm freed from everything that happened up to this point. No longer having to deal with it, work with it, face it. So does enlightenment liberate us from causation? Pai Chang was once asked the same question. It's a story he made up. You may remember that. <laughs> Yakujo and the Fox, Pai Chang, Yakujo. He asked if, a, if an enlightened person is free 
of cause and effect of karma. And he said, an enlightened person does not ignore karma. In other words, being in alignment with the way things are does not elevate us above the law of cause and effect. And what does that mean? Look at the words of Bodhidharma. He said, when you meet with adversities or some misfortune, do not be surprised because it makes sense. And I brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Do not be surprised because it makes sense. And how does it make sense? Well, the law of causation is the law of causation. There's no choice. So it makes sense. Life has its internal arranging law. It takes care of itself the way it moves. Right? You hold something, you drop it, it breaks. So it makes sense. For example, if a parent constantly criticized and judged you when you were, you were a child, chances are it will manifest in different times of your life, throughout your life, throughout your day, whether you like it or not. It will manifest. If you had a trauma at some point in your life, the emotional effects of it will inevitably show up. There is residue, emotional residue. Or if you were blindsided in the past and made really bad financial decisions, lost money, you have to deal with, or you are facing consequences. It's a fact. It's true. And it's the same with relationships too. Any other decisions you made in the past? Here it is. Here are the consequences. Like it or not. Here it is. So there's no question about the fact that we will, we are occasionally experiencing residual energy of past events or have to deal with consequences of past decisions. But do we have to identify with the way the past is manifesting today? Do we have to create something out of That's the question. Again, who is experiencing this? And what happens when we take responsibility for that one? For verifying or for asking that question, who is the one who is, is there someone there? 
which of course impermanence and causation are inseparable. If we look at causation through impermanence, through no fixed self, there is pain every month for decisions of maybe 10 years ago, or maybe 10 years from here on. That's not going to change. But what does that mean about the self? What is the self? So these are just common intangible examples. And we may even have memories of past events that spur up this occasional reactivity that we experience. So maybe we understand, maybe you understand why Bodhidharma said it makes sense in relation to that. Maybe we do opt to take responsibility for those. But the Buddha's teachings of karma goes well beyond our lifetime. And this is where it can get tricky. Because we all, we often may experience residual energy of things we have no clue about. We don't know why we feel the way we feel and think the way we think. And we have no way to know. Dogen talks about that in the fascicle title, Sanjigo. And he speaks of the three temporal periods of karma. And he says, what we call the three temporal periods are the three time periods in which we receive the retribution for our good and evil acts. These are first a retribution experienced in one's present life. Second, the retribution experienced in one's next life. And third, the retribution experienced in some later future life. Through your practice of the way, you learn to clarify what is the principle of karmic retribution in these three time periods. If you do not do so, you will make many errors and fall into false views. You will not just fall into false views, you will also give rise to evil ways and undergo suffering for a long time. Sometimes you read Dogen and you think like, he must have known me. Because a lot of what he says is so relevant to our lives. By, falling to, by failing to continue developing your good roots, you will lose much spiritual merit and will have long-standing obstructions on your path to enlightenment. By not understanding how to work with karma, by not understanding karma, that simple law of causation, by not understanding or maybe by refusing to <clears throat> accept that there is, there are other influences other than the ones that I went through in my lifetime, If we think we know it all, if we think we went to therapy for three years and 
figured out everything that happened up to this point and I know why and now I have an explanation for everything I feel, everything I do, everything I think. If we think that, then we will, as he says, experience hardship, difficulty, suffering. Because there will be many times that we will not have explanation to what we feel. And there will be no one to ask. Because those times are long gone. Is this depressing? Or is this actually showing us something that we could use the next time we feel stuck, the next time we feel hindered by thoughts, emotions, actions, consequences. And you know, whether or not you believe in reincarnation is irrelevant here. It's not that we have to, this is trying to convince us to buy the idea of Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Just put that aside too. You know, just look at impermanence and the truth of interdependent origination. Just that. And just recognize that nothing exists in a vacuum. And with that, also, we need to understand that karma is constantly created by thoughts, speech, and action. Right? Constantly created by thoughts, speech, and action. Now, just that. Are you aware of all your past thoughts, speech, and action? Of course not. Are you aware of everything you were exposed to up to today, up to this moment? Of course not. How about everything that your family experienced before you were born? How about what you were born to? There's no beginning, there's no end. There's only dealing with, there's only working with, facing, understanding that not knowing is a huge aspect of our existence. Not having control over what we want to have control over is also a huge aspect of our existence. I think sometimes we are so desperate to create control or to feel like we are in some control and to create a bubble of make-believe, controlled life. It's a bubble. It's not true. Not knowing is real. And it's fine. The truth is, we are always left to deal with effects of causes we know nothing about. 
you know, Buddhism teaches that each of us has different seeds, many seeds, that will manifest only when the conditions are ripe. But you don't know what kind of seeds you have in you. So you don't know what does it mean when the conditions are ripe. Conditions are ripening and then all of a sudden you start to feel something. And you ask, why do I feel this way? You don't know. And you will never know. But is that the way to freedom, to answer those questions? Because if this is the way to freedom, then we just might as well pack it up and drop out because practice is not going to give you the key to open up and to answer those questions, to open that door. So what do we do with all these karmic entanglements? This koan brings up a line from the Diamond Sutra which says, if someone is reviled by others, this person has done wicked acts in previous ages and should fall into evil ways. But because of the scorns and revilements of people in the present age, the wicked deeds of the past are dissolved. Now we need to know how to read this, right? Reviled by others uh, sounds very harsh. You know, most of us probably don't experience and will not experience this kind of harsh energy by others. But we do experience getting entangled by our own past actions or by what we have been exposed to. Maybe we do feel reviled by life itself sometimes, defeated by life. tell you that my father actually a big chunk of his life felt this way. Always felt that the grass is greener somewhere else. Always felt that he was shortchanged. Always complained about what he did not always until he was on his deathbed. I think he had a few minutes of appreciation. And that's what happens. It's working in us, right? It's operating in us and we have to open up, we have to experience. It's not personal. You know, karma is not personal, although we ourselves experience it. It's not personal in nature because it's not about creating a person. It's not designed, it's not meant to create anything. It's just the way life moves. 
It's just the way things are. If we don't understand karma, we may think that because I did the crime in the past, I have to do the time today. So I'm going to walk around with my head down, drag my feet, get through life somehow. I walk around feeling defeated. Which means be identified with the one who is paying the price or being punished by the past. Let's look again at Bodhidharma's words about this. He said, individuals create karma. Karma does not create individuals. Yeah, powerful line, isn't it? Individuals create karma. Karma does not create individuals. It doesn't create anything. They create karma in this life and receive their reward in the next. They never escape. Only someone who is perfect creates no karma in this life and receives no reward. The sutras say who he creates karma, creates no karma, obtains the dharma. This isn't an empty saying. You can create karma, but you can't create a person. When you create karma, you're reborn along with your karma. When you don't create karma, you vanish along with your karma. Hence, with karma dependent on the individual, and the individual dependent on karma, if an individual doesn't create karma, karma has no hold on him or her. In the same manner, a person can enlarge the way. The way cannot enlarge the person. Where is the person? A person can enlarge the way. A person can allow the way to manifest itself. When we meet with consequences, we can either get busy weeding a self out of the way the karma manifests, or we can view it as an opportunity to break free from the incessant need to create a self. The need to create a self is not born with karma or with consequences. It's born from being, or from being misaligned. It's born from thinking that there is a need to look for itself. We constantly weave it like a spider weaving webs. And we weave it from anything, especially from consequences of past events. That's the story, isn't it? Not that that's the story, but that's what we do with the storyline. And it's the good news, because we're here to, to see, to see what we do. 
maybe to do something else. Maybe to awaken. Winnen commented on, he said, to speak, Winnen, the sixth patriarch, to speak in terms of inner reality, previous ages is the deluded mind of the preceding moment. The present age is the awake mind of the succeeding moment. The awake mind of the succeeding moment scorns the deluded mind of the previous moment. I always love that. The awake mind of the succeeding moments caused the deluded mind of the previous moment. This is the moment to awaken. This is the moment to scorn the deluded mind of the previous moment. This is because the delusion cannot remain. Therefore, it is said that the wicked deeds of the previous ages will be thereby dissolved. Once deluded thoughts die out, Bad deeds aren't done, and one attains enlightenment. It sounds simplistic, but the last line, anyway. But, but it's true. It's true. Because only the awakened mind of this moment can shed light on the consequences, or on becoming trapped by the consequences of what was or what happened up to this moment. Not only that we cannot go back and change, we don't even know where to go back to. Even if you were able to travel back in time, where would you go? How far would you go to correct what you feel now? You can't. even if you have the technology. Winnegg is speaking about meeting the moment from the clarity of inner reality, of our inner reality, in which impermanence and karma are realized as inseparable. Now one. And from there, he states that the past, the past is a, is a conglomerate of the deluded mind is just what we do with it that matters. Right? So when we look at the past, we see whatever we see. We understand that we cannot see it all. Right? So looking at it this way, and then from there, from here, looking at the reality of this moment, right? to see that it is mirroring an awakened mind. The reality of this moment, or to awaken to the reality of this moment. And the reality of this moment lies at the basis of tomorrow. So if you are awakened to the way you react to, to the way you respond to what was, Regrets, for example. Yeah, we may have many regrets. But what about not creating regrets for later? Because if I am whining about what I did not do or did do in the past, I am not changing the way I'm operating. 
And I am guaranteed in five years to look back at today and do the same. I will do the same in five years if I'm not changing it right now. And that goes for anything. Anything we hold on to. If we refuse to let it go now, we will not let it go in five years. Then we will look back and whine about it. And complain to everybody and to ourselves primarily. Freedom is not what we think it is. It's not that when you awaken, all of a sudden everything dissolves. You no longer have to go back and pay the bills and deal with the family and whatever it is that you're dealing with and is weighing you down. It's just awakening us to the fallacy of creating a self out of the way we experience what happened up to this point. It's awakening us to the reality of no separate existence. There is nothing to create. <clears throat> the verse says, continuous success and failure inextricable cause and effect. Cause and effect are inseparable. Continuous success and failure. Go down, you go up. You go down, you go up. Falling, fall. Get up, get up. Not identifying with anything. And these two first lines express the truth of an unbroken reality that essentially has no gaps or divisions. And if there are no gaps or divisions, where do you find the self? Where do you find you? Show it. Prove it. Bring it up if it's there. And the second line, the third line says, outside the mirror easily ran Yajnatada. And this is about the story, it's taken from a story about a king named Yajnadatta who one day looked at the mirror and could not see his face. He only saw the body. He was faceless, headless. So he went running around all town, crazy, not knowing what to do, mad. In commentary he says, this is missing the real and clinging to the illusory. When real wisdom appears, illusory karma vanishes. Illusory karma, does that mean no karma? Or does that mean that 
we are looking in the wrong place for the self. You know, Yajnadada was looking at a reflection, hoping to find himself. But all he had to do is look directly at, not at a reflection, not at what other people think about you or said about you in the past or are saying about you now. How could others know? Others who most of them are lost as well. We keep looking to verify ourselves elsewhere rather than look directly. So, run around like crazy, like this guy. Maybe I'm here. Maybe I'm here. Maybe I'll find myself there. Maybe I'll take another course, another seminar, read another book. Accumulate more knowledge. Get a black belt. Whatever. Maybe then I will find myself. When others recognize my importance, my value. In the next couple lines, in the verse said, With the staff, the oven breaker struck, the oven fell. <clears throat> the spirit came to celebrate, only to be told he had been turning away from himself. Now this is referring to a story about some mountain people who had a shrine with a large oven, where they used to burn animals to sacrifice to the spirits. And at that time, there was a master who was later known as the organ breaker. He came over to visit the shrine with some followers. And he stood there by the organ, hit it with staff three times, and said to the mountain people, This organ is composed of brick and mud. Where does the holiness come from? And where does the spirit arise that you burn living creatures to it? He then hit it again three times, and the organ broke to many pieces and fell apart. At that instant appeared a tall man dressed in green, wearing a tall hat. Cute story. He bowed and said, I was originally the spirit of the shrine. For a long time I was subject to consequences of karma. Today, having heard your explanation of birthlessness, I am freed from this place and born in heaven. I just came to offer my thanks. The master said, It is your fundamental nature, not my insistence. It is your fundamental nature, not my insistence. Maybe that's all we need to hear. This is your fundamental nature, not what you will hear, how many books you will read. How many seminars you will take? The spirit then bowed and disappeared. You know, a teacher or a spiritual guide cannot hold the key to your freedom. 
because it is your fundamental nature. Same with karma. If we believe that karma, we are held back by karma, then of course we obey it and act accordingly. We act as if we are held back and we are held back. We believe it to be true. We believe that there is the one who is being punished by or is paying the dues for past mistakes. Success and failure, inseparable, right? Inseparable, continuous, yet not creating a self. The self is not created, we create. There is volition. There is how we deal with. And there is the practice. Winning says, because you yourself hold, uphold the scriptures, adhere to practice. Because you adhere to practice, you do not produce images of self and other, and always practice respect without question of enemy or friend. Not contending when offended against. Yeah, that. Not reacting, not feeling belittled, feeling hurt. Really defeated. Not contending when offended against. Always cultivating transcendent wisdom. So the burdensome faults of previous ages will all vanish. Now, do not produce images of self and other and do not react to criticism or recognition. To practice deep respect and appreciation without judgment. All the time constant practice, and to remain equanimous, magnanimous, huge, vast, embracing all, rejecting none. This is how deep wisdom is cultivated. We can't cultivate deep wisdom if we don't know how to work with karma. Or if we expect not to experience. We expect to be done with whatever. There's a line of Yan Sutra that says, Should one wish to repent it, let him sit upright and meditate on the true aspect of reality. All sins are just as frost and dew, so wisdom's sun can disperse them. Wisdom's sun rises and everything melts. Right? The rigid self melts away. Beautiful. So, looking into this, looking at the next three months, 
You know, and again, it's not, Ango is not, you don't have to do it. If you think you're not ready, then you probably know what you're waiting for, because I don't. And if you know what you're waiting for, then ask when will I be ready? When will that be delivered to me? Right? So you don't have to do this. But if you do choose to do this, you do choose to take life as a practice, to dive deeply into it so you can live it well, then contemplate impermanence and look at karma, look at causation, look at what you do with causation. Because the self does not come with the law of causation. The self is born from the way we handle causation. And when the self is not created, a realized person does not ignore causation. Thank you.